Welcome to the Mimecast. This is Michael Jean Sullivan. Now, for the past 60 years, the Tony and Obie Award winning, and despite its name, never ever silent San Francisco mime troupe has brought its brand of revolutionary theater to audiences across the country and around the world. Their original musical comedies, and some dramas, but mainly comedies, have tackled social and economic and environmental justice, civil rights, workers' rights, gender equality, oppression at home and abroad, and how capitalism is essentially antithetical to democracy. Hundreds of artists, actors, designers, writers, directors, composers, lyricists, and choreographers have helped the mime troupe inform, entertain, and stir up the working class over the decades. And the mime cast is a chance to get to know some of them a little bit better. Today, super happy to have my good friend, actor, writer, designer, director, and Mind Troop Collective member, Keiko Shimasato Carrero. Hey! Hello! Hey, thanks for asking me to to do this, Michael. Yeah, well, like I said, I end up learning so much stuff that I didn't know about people. So let's start from the beginning. Okay. So, So where were you born? I was born in in the greater Boston area in Massachusetts. I believe it was in Cambridge at the Boston Lying In Women's Hospital. Oh, so what? I know while you were there, you were busy getting born. <laughs> but what were your parents doing in Boston? So my, my father arrived here in the United States after World War II as a Fulbright scholar. Um, and he first landed in Houston, Texas, where he uh, did his residency um and so he was a doctor yeah he's a doctor he was studying anesthesiology um and so yeah he landed in the south in the american Uh south like right after world war ii and bathrooms were still colored and white and Mm -hmm. he got kicked out of both anyways that's another story but um my mother had come to the United States for just one year. She was allowed by her mother to come here for one year after she had graduated from um, Tokyo Women's College. And that was kind of like a first generation of Japanese women, modern women who were allowed to go to, to university. And so she was allowed by her mother to come to the United States for just one year. Um, and she stayed with my... <clears throat> what we call my, my Jewish aunt. Um, she's the person who, um, she was a journalist who was working in Japan during World War II and almost hired my mother to be a translator, but then chose someone else, but never forgot my mom. And so invited her to come visit the United States after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mother ended up coming here and then at a Japan society picnic in Cambridge, met my father, and didn't go back after a year. So they met and okay. they, yeah, they, they met in Boston um, and got married. Like, a, uh, I think my father proposed to her like three weeks after they met and wow. they got married within that year. And then they had me within the next year. Yeah, it was like, um, and my mother said, <laughs> you know, she came here for adventure 
and because she loved the sound of the English language. Um, but it, it, this was not, she wasn't really planning on getting married or anything, but for, for the purposes of a young Japanese woman, she was 27 already, which mm. is, as we know, day old Christmas cake. You know, she was, <laughs> she was far, she was far yeah. too old and might end up being an old maid. Um, but so when she met my dad, she's like, oh, okay, it's probably about time. <laughs> and they had me. Now, what was she, what did she study in college? Um, it's funny because she never really lost her very heavy Japanese accent, but she studied English literature. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like I said, she loved the sound of the English language. You know? yes. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, so they get married and they're in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was because your father was, your parents were working there? Yeah. Um, my father's next residency, um, ended up being at the, um, Mass General, Massachusetts mm. General Hospital. So he was working there and my mother was, again, still visiting, visiting the United States and staying with my aunt who had a house in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Um, she, and my aunt was a children's book writer oh. and her husband was kind of a world famous psychiatrist uh psychologist psychiatrist robert j lifton who wrote um home from the war i think anyway oh, so, wow. so they were activists and um i don't they they wanted to show my mother kind of the good charming side of the united states after the war had happened yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> so wow. um so did yeah. you grow up in Boston? Were you a little kid there? Um, I did grow up in the Boston area up until the time I was 15. Mm. So my first two years were spent mostly in Cambridge, um, mostly around, I mean, there's lots of pictures of me in a stroller in Harvard Yard. And that was, <laughs> I think my parents' dream was that I was going to grow up and go to Harvard. Uh <laughs> didn't happen but anyways that was a, it's they're beautiful black and white photographs of a you know idealistic young Japanese couple pushing a stroller through Harvard Yard yeah <laughs> yeah so how was that for you growing up was there much of a Japanese community there there was no Japanese community there so in fact what an amazing time for my parents to um be in Massachusetts uh, the only Japanese community were all of, quote unquote, the brain drain. Um, mm. So all of their friends were there to either study or um, one of them was a was a fa famous as astrophysicist who was working at Harvard. And, you know, they were they were all either artists or scientists who were here um, on some sort of a grant or scholarship coming here from Japan for uh, you know, just a short period of time, but they all met in my parents' living room because they were, you know, the older, more experienced couple, and mm. it, uh, they had lived in the United States then for, you know, three or four years, so they knew America, and all these young students were coming in and hanging out in the living room. That was really cool, but there were probably like 10 or 12 people total, no Japanese grocery store, no restaurants or any of that that we're used to here in San Francisco now. But at that time, um, 
there was no fresh fish. So my father made friends with a guy named George who had a tiny seafood store called George's Legal Seafood, which <laughs> is now Legal Seafoods in, you know, in Boston, um, a famous seafood chain up and down yeah. the East Coast. But my father, you know, in, in going to the seafood store and looking at fish, you know, he was looking at the eyeballs and checking the gills and stuff. And so this um, fishmonger, George, asked my dad, how, I hear you eat fish raw. How do you do that? How do you know which fish is fresh enough to, to eat raw? And so my father taught him how to um, tell if, uh, if tuna was, was fresh enough to eat raw and how to uh, fillet a striped bass to eat a sushi. So he, he taught him how to, to make sushi. Wow. Um, he taught legal seafood how to do it. Huh. Well, wow. I mean, and, and he would come over to our house with a fresh fish, like a whole fish, and bring it over to our house, um, our apartment in, in Cambridge at the time. Um, and then another, wow. the first Japanese grocery store in Boston, which is called Yoshinoya's, which is now also a big, famous Japanese grocery store, was a tiny corner store. And my parents, um, and it was run by one little Japanese lady who who also lived in you know moved to Boston after the war and um, they started to go in and request certain ingredients and materials and she started to order things from Japan and that's how Yoshinoya's grocery store started too it was kind mm -hmm. of like a, a collective of um, different Japanese you know, the, the community in, in Boston and Cambridge um, needing certain things and ingredients and she would order it and they would distribute and then it turned into a store. So, yeah, that's, wow. so there wasn't much of a community, but by the time that, that we left, you know, the Japanese community was, was sizable. I mean, I don't know the statistics, but I mean, there were, it was a, a much more comfortable place for people to come to. <laughs> so um, by the time we left, there were Japanese restaurants. In fact, I had this circle of my parents' friends. It was like the whole Asian community was really small. So Joyce Chen, you know, the Joyce Chen cookbook and the Joyce Chen mm -hmm. restaurant change. Mm -hmm. um, she was also a friend of my parents and her husband, Thomas Chen, um, married his second wife was a Japanese woman who was a, who befriended my parents or Thomas introduced her to my parents because she had nobody to speak Japanese with. So it was all about, you know, how, who you could talk to who mm. still spoke the language. That's and so, yeah, so they came to our house and they started a Japanese restaurant called Osaka, which I believe is also still open in Boston. And again, my father being, I mean, there's, there's a reason why I like food too. They were, he was kind of a foodie. Um, and he would uh, help with the menu. In fact, he did the graphics for their first menu. Wow. But yeah, I know he was, he was a doctor, but he, this is another whole story, but he wanted to be an artist. So. Oh, really? I didn't know we'll that. We'll go into that next. <laughs> My father wanted to be a, a, an artist, but um, the 
family legend has it that his mother was sweeping the dust off the floor. And my father ran in and said, I got a scholarship to art school. And my mother, my grandmother was sweeping the floor and said, artists like you are like the dust I'm sweeping off the floor. Poor people like us can't become artists. You must oh. become a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist. Um, it's a familiar wow. story, I think, for people, you know, during the war and after the war. This, um, yeah, a time when Japan was rebuilding, like to be an artist was, um, and and they were poor. They their house was bombed during the war, and so they they really like were starting to build from, up nothing. Yeah, and and the only way my father probably could have left Matsumoto, which was a small village at that time, was to get the scholarship and to get the Fulbright. Otherwise. Um, yeah, uh, it's not such a small town now, but at the time it was pretty small. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is a little heartbreaking to have that moment where it's like, I got accepted. I'm going to be an artist. Somebody recognizes right. me as an artist. And I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah, you're, you're just, that'll, you're like the dust no. I sweep off the floor. It's like, whew, that hurts. Yeah. So, you know, what's ironic is, yeah, yeah. Oh, just just to complete that irony is that, um, of course, my father didn't want me to be an artist either, and he wanted me to follow his footsteps and become a, a medical professional. Um, yeah. And so, same thing. He didn't call me the dust he was sweeping off the floor, but basically said, "There's no future. <laughs> you know, there's there's no future. You should find a real job and some way to support yourself." Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it was interesting talking to different people. Like uh, 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 Reggie was saying that, uh, uh, you know, his both of his parents were very much like, "How are you going to do this? How are you going to make a living? How are you going to, you know?" Um, they were worried about all that the stereotypes they see of artists. You know, the 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 in film and television shows. If you're trying to be an actor, the the idea is, oh, really? Well, what restaurant do you work at? Otherwise, you're right. a starving a visual artist, you know, you're hooked on drugs, you're living under a truck somewhere in a parking lot. All of these things that are these fears that, that for the parents of the artists. And he said with his father, at one point, he was like, his father's like, I don't know what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And Reggie said, well, this is how much money I'm making right now per week. And his father was like, oh, oh well, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> and after that, it was like, you know. As long as he's been working, you know, keeps doing stuff, and he just, you know, he was doing, just doing a Broadway show, that they've been kind of like, okay, all right, you know, the most important thing was, did he look happy? And they were like, well, you look happy. They wanted him to be a lawyer, but he looks happy, so they were okay. But anyway, so back to you. <laughs> Um, so, you're a little kid in Boston, and there's not much of a Japanese community. Yeah. And it's after World War right. II. I mean, all of this is after World War II. But um, what was that like? Oh, all right. Back to my childhood. Um, you know, it's interesting because I've been thinking a lot about that time period for a one-woman show that I'm hopefully going to do. Um you know, there was still a lot of racism. <laughs> so, what a shock. I mean, Boston, is really? It's just in the past, and it's here it is revisiting us now, you know, with the Chinese flu. But um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a part that I've blocked out of my mind a lot because Mm -hmm. it's difficult. It was difficult for me to understand why I would be called a chink and a gook and all these other things that I didn't understand what they meant. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing that stands out the most to me was like in, in second grade, I think it was second grade or third grade, there was a boy that I didn't know at all, but I thought he was really cute. Um, he was older. He was probably in fifth or sixth grade, and I was in third grade. And one day, suddenly, he offered to give me a ride home on the back of his Stingray bicycle. And I was just like, oh, my God, I will name no names. But so I got on the back of his bicycle with all of my heavy school books. And he started riding me towards my house, and then he dumped me off the back. And then he, yeah, he laughed, and he called me a chink and rode away. And that, it's it's like I'm getting kind of like shaky just thinking about that time period because I was in shock. I really had absolutely no, it's very emotional still. I... I ran home to my mom, and my mom's response was, um, you know, bring him here. <laughs> let, me, mm. let, me, let me talk to him. And the other thing was, you know, kids can be so cruel, you know, and, and they would call me things like Ching Chong and King Kong and where do you come from, King Kong or Hong Kong, the totally nonsensical things. And I don't, you know, child mind, me, had no way to understand where that was coming from. And my mother um, would, would, like I said, say, bring them here. Let me talk to them. Don't they know that Ching Chong is not a place and Hong Kong is a place and we are not Chinese and we are Japanese and all these things that were totally logical. But I'm crying and, you know, none of, none of this really makes sense. Now, when I look back on it, um, the one thing that stuck out was my mother said, you know, don't worry, this is going to make you stronger, mm. <laughs> which does, is not a lot of comfort for an eight year old, <laughs> No, but, but honestly, um, did you ever bring any of them back? Did your mother ever talk to any of these kids? No, it wouldn't be easy. I would it think. would not be easy. However, what? What she did, my grandmother would send us these care packages of Japanese candy, like these big brown paper packages tied up in string. Um, We'd open them up and there'd be Japanese candy and, you know, different like origami and dolls and stuff. And my mother like put some of the candy aside and put it in little packages and said, here, give these to those boys who make fun of you. And I was like, uh can I really do that? I never was able to. I wasn't mm. able to give it to them. But mm. it, it just, it's its now thinking back on it, it's a big window into the way that my mother thought, you know? Yeah. And it has informed the way that I think now, like um, smile and love my enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, thats its It's gotten me a lot further than the resentment and anger that I felt at that time. So, um um so but it's hard yeah well I'm going into my sixth decade and I'm still dealing with all of this stuff you know because those incidents continue have continued throughout my life 
Um, but we're talking about my, my young time back in Boston when there were no Asians there. Um, so those kinds of experiences pop up, you know, and have popped up throughout mm -hmm. my life. So um, it's interesting. So I hang on yeah. to what my mom said then. And maybe in the future, I will give people a bag of candy. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to know. I mean, because it's like, how long is it going to take for that person to be able to uh, um, understand the meaning of the relationship in a way? To be able to accept and go, yeah, that's, you know, I was dehumanizing this person and, and they're just, they're being nice to me. And, and I'm doing that because I'm frightened or because I don't understand them. I see them as a threat or I've been raised to see them as some as this other and so I'm othering them. Who knows what, uh, you know, uh, I remember when I was a little kid, there was a, a little girl who moved to our um, building. And uh, in when I was a little kid in Los Angeles, like four, and she was from like Sweden or somewhere like that. And she had an accent, her parents barely spoke English. And the group of kids that are hanging, you know, our little group of kids were, you know, very multiracial and different, you know, slightly different ages and stuff. But for some reason, we could not accept this little girl, mm -hmm. you know, for some reason, she was always an other. And she was super friendly and really nice. Um, and and I mean, we didn't like bully her or beat her up or anything. We just kind of excluded her. Mm -hmm. when we were doing stuff and her mother was always like telling her we could you know go play with those kids but we would just not tell her if we were doing things basically um so so it was mean in a different way mm -hmm. and i've always felt bad about that i've always been like if i knew her last name all i know i still remember her first name which was melanie but they pronounced it melanie um if i knew her name i would try to get in touch with her now you know yeah. and just say, you probably don't remember this but I am so sorry that we didn't accept you. Yeah. That for some reason you we designated you as an other, and uh, for no for no damn good reason. So, so you can never tell, you know, how much those people. All you can do is, well, I can do. You're <laughs> a very nice person. All I can do is hope that those people who are giving you a hard time then are tormented by it now, and trying, you know. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping they're living a really good life, and that I know that's why I said you're a nice person. <laughs> I'm like, I hope they're sitting there going, "What was the girl's name?" Oh man, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know. So, um, just want. just on this this train of thought, because there's good stories, right? But mm -hmm. uh, do you remember Tressa Diaz, my troop show we did year, yeah. uh, you know, uh, what? couple decades back now something like that yeah I yeah can't remember exactly it's like 25 but years. um because it was yeah um but one of the actors and i'm not gonna mention names again but one of the actors uh was a vietnam vet mm -hmm. who was who was quite traumatized you know during during his time over there and came out of it with a complete distrust of Asians. And it didn't matter if you were Japanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, Thai, Indonesian. Um, and we were working in the same cast on tour together. And um, it was fairly awkward at first because really he was very uncomfortable around Asians. And 
Um, so I spent a lot of time with him. We went out to eat and I finally got him to eat Japanese food together. Um, and so that was one place where I felt like, you know, it really was a good experience for me to hold hands with this man throughout this, this tour. And at the end of it, um, he said to me that he had, that, that something had changed and that he was no longer feeling the same way or the same kind of fear about all Asian people, that it was really, you know, an individual basis and that we are all humans. Um, and wow. for his sake, he was also one of the veterans for peace. But so hopefully, you know, like more of that, less of the getting dumped off the bicycle, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. So, okay, so back to you being a little kid. So you're a little kid. You're still in Boston. We haven't gotten out of Boston yet. Um, okay. Like so many people, apparently. Uh, and so you're, uh, now when you were a little kid, now you've got your, your father who didn't want to be an artist and uh, your mother who's in love with the English language. Um, was she teaching or did she work or did she stay at home? She ended up being um basically a house mom you know she was she was a, a very good professional japanese mom that wasn't her dream she did want to go back to japan and teach english um huh. particularly literature but uh she was teaching flower arrangement i think <laughs> um on the harvard campus and at the J japan society for a while in wow. fact, that's how she found out she was pregnant. She was teaching flower arrangement, wearing a, a kimono, like which is very tight around the, the yeah. diaphragm, the mid mid body, and she fainted <laughs> while she was teaching oh. a class. And uh, yeah, the doctor oh. said, "Yeah, wow. what? You're pregnant." Yeah, you don't have to loosen the belt part. So now, when you were a little kid, were you interested in art yet, or you know, I just wonder because like. Uh, if your father being the artist who, the frustrated artist, and your mother's doing mm. far, des far design, which is art, but were you at all interested in art, or what, do you, what were you wanting to, what was your focus when you were a little kid, if you had one? Well, you know, the, the fact that my grandmother told him he was like the dust on the floor um, didn't stop him from making art he drew and painted like all of his life and in fact like continued to do sumi sumia brush paintings but so when i was a kid and his work wasn't so highly pressurized as it became later on at the dining room table we'd draw together so oh, that really? was part of the day it was he, he would always be drawing with me and then my middle sister too when she was born so not as a profession but yeah he encouraged us to draw and in fact he he and my mother both encouraged us to engage in the arts that mm. was fine it just mm. couldn't be a profession right <laughs> which which i think is kind of culturally very japanese in a way i mean it's like many people have hobbies and they're quite consummate artists but mm -hmm. it's not their profession it's pretty mm. weird that is interesting. Well, at least they have that, you know, because it's very not. I mean, there was a period in, in a lot of different cultures where it's like, OK, well, like in American history, there was a point where it's like 
you had a piano, you know, and you were supposed the kids were supposed to learn piano. As soon as you got to a point where you had some kind of a home, the next step, even for kids, I remember reading um, uh, Ruby D's part of Ruby D's autobiography, and she talks about you know she's growing up and it's the twenties and thirties in Harlem, but everybody has a piano. Every you know everybody learns how to play an instrument. That was just like a given, you know. Right. So, so yeah, having that that kind of but you're not supposed to do that for a living but art is supposed to be part of your life that's right. you know hmm. so 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 at what point what now uh because i know you, i mean you're a designer you're an actor you're a musician when you were a kid which thing was kind of pushing forward or were they all kind of like these are all things i'm interested in So I think that kind of changed over time, but so when in that phase of five to 10 years old, it was mostly mm -hmm. visual arts. I mean, I like to draw. And some of that was, you know, that's, that was a coping mechanism as well. It's like when everything else was too much, it's like go and, and draw. Um, mm. In third grade, I was lucky enough to be able to, they still taught music in grade school. <laughs> So I, yeah. I got to take flute lessons, which was free to my parents. You know, they just taught it through school, through public mm -hmm. school. Um, and not at first, because, you know, when you're first learning an instrument, it's usually just like frustrating. But at a certain point, I got better at it. And that was more of an emotional relief for me to be able to like play music. Um mm. So I think from from about 10 years old on until I was like uh, 16 or so, that was my place of refuge, was being able to close my door and say, I'm going to practice music now and, and then play my flute for, for hours on end. Um, because that was something, oh, um, well, that was also something that, was understandable to my dad and mm -hmm. and kind of respectful respectable rather that was something that he had always wanted to be able to do but he oh, yeah. was never able to learn an instrument god knows he tried <laughs> um god uh forgive me dad but um well was he, he tried just trying different instruments oh, around he, you know he picked up the harmonica and he would enthusiastically play the harmonica and sing completely off key all kinds of all kinds of american folk songs and stuff he picked up the guitar never really got it um but would sing again very loudly and enthusiastically you know american folk songs on the guitar um well, as long as he was he, at least he was trying yeah. um but so he passed the guitar on to me he's like uh this isn't working for me here you you can have this and so i think he always wanted to have music and he just didn't so then it it he actually i think admired it in a way or you know like it made him happy that i was able to play music um mm -hmm. and that was cool until it came to whenever they had dinner parties he would make me play for them. Oh, <laughs> that was like a lot of pressure. Yeah, 
so. Oh, that is tough. Was he just kind of go, okay, go, go get your guitar or flute and let's hear that tune? Yeah, and then when my my sisters, yeah, and of course they had been drinking a little too. So it's like when my my middle sister also learned how to play piano, then then he would be like, you guys, uh, come and play, the, you know, that song you were practicing the other day. I want to hear it. And he's like, oh, God. <laughs> Plays it. And then the party stops. Everybody has to sit in the living room and be really polite and listen to these two kids <laughs> playing this song. <laughs> and you couldn't say no to my dad. I couldn't <laughs> say no because he, then he would snap and it would, he would be angry. Like, what? <laughs> That, it's interesting. That is so similar uh, to uh, stories that Valina would tell me, where once she got into the guitar and she'd be playing the guitar and then her father would go, OK, we're having a party. Come on in with your guitar and sing that song you were practicing. And so whatever you were doing pu- privately, that private musical expression is suddenly just straight to performance for a bunch of grownups. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. No, I mean, and it's like, to this day i'm like just that was the worst performance anxiety i have ever had it's like my sister and i would like come walking out of our bedrooms totally in dread it's like oh shit (laughs) excuse my language but that that fear of like having to please my dad with something and and i'm like i don't know what i i don't i didn't even have anything prepared but it didn't matter it didn't matter. He just wanted to put his daughters on parade for his guest. So now I guess but, he was um, just so proud of you, you know, yeah, feel, and, and just, that you're doing something that he didn't feel like he could do. Like you're saying, he's like, the guitar's not working out for me. Maybe it can work for you. And so it's it's almost like you're coming out with a magic trick in a way. I, I can see that now, but it, um, boy, it didn't feel that way at the time. It felt like, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done wrong? Why do I have to do this? Um, that's tough and it, you just made me so i'm gonna go back to like even earlier like kindergarten or nursery oh, school it was nursery school countryside kindergarten but i was like four years old um and every year for this for the nursery school or kindergarten performance i would get dressed up in a little kimono and have to sing sakura mm. <laughs> for, for all the parents um, and I don't ever remember being afraid at that time. I mean, that was like, I loved doing that. And my parents, my mother was so embarrassed. She was like, oh, God. It's like, why is our daughter so extroverted? This is this is terrible. This is embarrassing. This is not childlike. Um, wow. So I wish such I a, such a weird, like, mixed message kind of thing to have the one parent who's totally embarrassed and the other parent is like, do it! Go out! Get out there! Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's conflicted messages. That's yeah, a lot of a lot of my childhood. (laughs) But you're getting a. It's interesting because you are end up doing a lot of art because you're learning. uh, You know, you're singing, you're playing two instruments, you're drawing with your father. So you're kind of doing uh, more art than a lot of kids in a situation where ultimately the idea is you're not going to be an artist. You know, uh, growing up in in the greater Boston area during the 60s and 70s, I feel like there was a lot of art being taught. I mean, this was during the Vietnam War protests and stuff. 
And I just feel like there are a lot of like summer art programs, a lot of free kid stuff happening around um, around that time. And so I remember doing a lot of community art projects with friends. So I didn't mm-hmm. feel singled out or, or particularly good at what I was doing. I felt mm-hmm. like everybody was doing it, which was really cool. It's like there would be like, let's do paper mache. Um, and then there'd be like 12 kids doing paper mache all together at uh, the recreation center. Um, I remember do- taking a stone carving class when I was like 10 years old because my parents had a friend, another friend from Japan during that generation who uh, became a famous stone sculptor. But she she wanted she needed some money. So I think my parents set her up with teaching a, a workshop for little kids. And mm-hmm. so we were all learning how to, to sculpt soapstone, I think is a very soft stone. Yeah. So in our front yard, we would do, you know, soapstone carving. Um, my dad actually did tie dye. And so we did tie dye in our front yard. Um, and actually my parents didn't mind us making a big mess. Like, as long as it was a creative mess, that was okay. Whereas I think when I went over to visit some of my friends, their parents didn't like that so much. (laughs) (laughs) So my parents' house kind of became kind of like a salon for little kids to make a big mess. As long as it was a creative mess, that was okay with my parents. So I I didn't feel like... um, alone I felt like everybody was doing art I thought that's what everybody did back then Mm -hmm. so it was later on that I probably around high school where I felt like oh I guess maybe this is unusual maybe not everybody does or considers art to be a serious possible career or um, a serious mode of expression you know, like, mm-hmm. or a large part of my life. Um, mm. So it, difference, it didn't stand out as to me as making me feel different from everybody else until maybe later high school, mm-hmm. about the time. So where maybe I was like, seven. it sounds to kind of like, like if there's so much art around and all these kids were doing it, but if they start maybe. Um, succumbing to the pressure from their parents or whatever of start going well art and maybe you know, I, you know they start pushing it aside and start going to, to other things and for yeah. you it was still so intrinsic to who you were and are that you kept it it stayed a, a central point rather than like you know like with your father having to put it aside as a profession and probably a lot of the other kids you were growing up with too it's just like yeah. not an option so when you're in high school, um, what did you what did you think? You were like, uh, I mean, I was I'm one of those people who my parents never really asked me what I was going to be when I grew up. I think everybody assumed I was going to be a history teacher because that's what I was so passionate about. But there was never any like, yeah, what are you going to major in? What are your classes you're taking or stuff like that? Um, so what were you thinking at, at that time? Were you like, well... Were you thinking maybe you would be an artist or was there something else that you were like, well, this is my day job thing that I'm shooting for? Um, No, it was always going to be some form of the arts. And at that time, it was either going to be writing 
or music. Oh, my phone battery is going low. I know. All right, my phone. So I'm going to have to plug it in. Sorry, you're okay. going to have to edit this. All right. Okay, plugged in. Oh! <laughs> you're going to have to edit that. <laughs> oh, now I'm definitely keeping it. All right, this is this is real life during this time. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't think the shot is the same now. I'm sorry. That's okay. My tripod fell over. Anyways, um, sorry. Okay, here we go. All right, so where was I? Uh, uh, high, school. high school. Wanting uh, to be a writer. Oh, right. Um, or thinking you were going to be a writer, and uh, yeah, I. I was, you know, my my father did this wonderful thing of moving us from Boston to Iowa just when I was 15 and a half. <laughs> like, oh, great. Just in the middle of high school. Um, oh, yeah. And so, you know, finally, like I said, by the time that we left Boston, there was a larger Asian population. I wasn't the only person in high school, though still maybe one of six Asian kids in my high school um who moved to Iowa and I was the only one again you know mm. probably the only Asian person in all of Iowa City at that time um except for my family right so that's a completely different topic from writing or or music but the thing is um during this time my father would take me into the operating room to visit, you know, he would, he would, yeah, I got masked up and put on scrubs and stuff to be able to observe um, from a little observation booth because my father would tell everybody that I was, you know, proud and say, this is my daughter. She's thinking of going to medical school. And I was like, I had absolutely no, no wish to go to medical school, but I, could not again still say no to my father so i was like okay uh, i'll go in and watch this surgery oh my god so much blood so much opening of ribs oh you know and I, I can say that it strengthened my stomach for the sight of blood but it did not make me want to become a doctor <laughs> you weren't like oh uh, i can't wait to get in there <laughs> my poor dad um and at oh. the same time i had this really amazing high school counselor because I and my best friend had decided that uh, I needed to get out of high school as fast as I could because moving from Boston to Iowa I just like the the cultural shock that I went through at that moment was just it was big um, and I just felt like I need to get out of high school I need to start going to university or somewhere where I can study what I want to study. You know, it's mm -hmm. like suddenly I felt like everything that I was in class for, I had already learned. You know, I, I had learned it the year before. I felt not challenged. So I decided with the counts, you know, I, I just announced that I'm going to graduate a year early. And so that's not a, really allowed. It's not encouraged. And so they made me work with a, a counselor who was kind of a therapist in order to make a plan. Yeah, mm -hmm. I had to make a game plan and 
make sh they had to make sure that I was um, mature enough to graduate a year early. Anyways, he was great. And I'm really thankful for the time that I spent talking to this guy who basically negated everything my dad said in terms of becoming an artist. He was like, no, you know, you're a good writer. You, that's I completely encourage that. And you should think about that as a career. I was like, what? <laughs> and similarly with music, you know, it's like, you should, you know, they, they have um, scholarships available. You ought to look into, you know, auditioning and seeing if you can get a music scholarship. All of these things were completely foreign concepts because I was still thinking, yeah, this is what I really want to do. But in the end, I'm not going to go against my dad. I'm going to probably have to go to, to you know, to study science and yeah. ultimately, you know, go to med school or something like that. Um, so I'm grateful again for that guy. And I ended up applying for a music scholarship to the University of Iowa. And so this is where that dust story comes back at my dad. Cause I ran home and said, I've had a scholarship to music school. And his response was, I never gave you permission to apply. Um, uh, you are disowned. So that's, wow. that's the where same that story. Repeats pretty itself. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, and you know, it was on a tour that we were on together. You and I did uh, Ripped, and I hadn't really returned to Iowa after graduating um, as a professional actor until we did Ripped at Hancher Auditorium. And that was the first performance that my father actually came to. I mean, and I had done performances. I had done shows while I was at the University of Iowa, um, student performances. He never came and never acknowledged that that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And when he came to see Ripped, what he said at that time, like, just changed the world again. He said, you know, Keiko, you are actually pretty good at what you do. <laughs> and that was... That was a huge validation. That was huge. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it must have been for him to be able to get to that point. That can be if you're like really trying to stop someone from being an artist, and they are an artist. Now they are undeniably an artist and making a living at it. To have to go, oh, you're yeah, you're you're good at that. Yeah, that could be tough because you are. <laughs> It's like you, you don't have power over the person anymore. You can't stop them. Clearly, they're their own person. So you've got to kind of acknowledge it, you know. Oh, but I want to get back to so so you're leaving. So when you leave school, when you get you, oh, how was your how are your parents about you leaving high school early? Just just when you were like, oh, I want to graduate early. Were they proud? They're like, she's so brilliant. Or they're like, whoa, what the hell's going on? Um. You know, I think uh, they were both, you know, they didn't stand in my way. They mm -hmm. actually encouraged my independence in that, but I think they were both very concerned. And maybe they thought that if it worked, it was okay. And if it didn't work, I would learn my lesson. I don't know. <laughs> um, but they didn't stand in my way. 
they neither did they come to my my graduation. They didn't come to the cap and gown ceremony. No. <laughs> Ugh. I think my I think my dad may have been sick. Uh, I don't I don't remember, but they didn't make it. Mm. So, did they do any kind of celebration around it, or just kind of it was just? I guess if he was ill, but still. No, Ooh. it really didn't make. That's you know, it's like high school was not a super happy part of my life or an important part of my life. It's weird, you know, it's like I've had this discussion with with Michael, my husband, Michael Carrero, because, you know, it's like high school for so many people is people are it's like the best years of my life or whatever. And to me, it was um, something I ran away from. Um, And I think it went largely unmarked by my parents. Um, I don't think it's the same in Japan. I don't think that high school is, I don't, I don't know if it's, maybe they didn't understand exactly the importance of a high school graduation in this culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, That's... yeah, it was simply expected because the, the important thing was that whatever happened, I was going to get to university. Right. Um, and that part, my father did encourage you know, he expected that I would get a higher education, albeit in right. medicine. Um, he, he did expect that, even though I was a girl. Um, he was modern enough guy to understand that that's what he wanted for his daughters, that we were all supposed to get a higher education. Hmm. So, but he couldn't that accept he... that it would be an art. <laughs> yes, not art. Um, so you were saying that high school was kind of like a meh. Was that, do you think, because of the move? Because it was like suddenly, I know for some people, it's like you go through school and being a senior in high school, it's like you're, you've built up this cachet of, of, of uh, you know, memories and friends and all of this stuff so that you get the payoff is that you get to be a senior in high school. But if you move before that, you kind of lose all of the cachet, all of the friends, all of that stuff goes away. And so um, I was just wondering, is that part of maybe why the excitement of being in high school for some people, that last bit of, you know, the payoff of your childhood is just not as interesting. Um, or the people just dicks. Uh, no, I think the move had a lot to do with it, but this is, you know, something I'm still trying to figure out, but, you know, I went from, ex- you know, being, pretty much accepted in my high school in Lexington. Um, Not that there was a large Asian population still, but I didn't feel, you know, I had a group of friends that didn't consider me exotic or strange. And Mm -hmm. I got to Iowa and it's just, it's a feeling, you know, it's like the first day that I walked into the band room, um, it's like everybody stopped and stared and I felt again like you know I looked around the room and went okay nobody else here like me Mm. and that feeling of exotification you know just came back like okay I'm gonna be expected to be certain things that Asian people are and sure enough there was a lot of that you know I mean it's it's like this is the age when it's like boy and girl time, you know, or whatever, whether, you know, whatever my sexual interest, you know, 
attraction would have been, that's when that part of your maturity happens. And um, I think I did, I, I really went to the music and practicing because it was very clear that I was not what a lot of boys were going to be interested in there. I was like, I was not the ideal girl for them. I, I don't know. I felt very left out and alienated and mm, I was not one of the popular kids. Um, but even the friends that I made there who have ended up, you know, many of them becoming friends for life, those friendships started off with that kind of like exotification, you know, mm. like, ooh, ooh, she's Japanese. I've never met a person who's Japanese. And and so the, you know, the first steps towards making a friend would be based on that until mm. they understood that I was really just like them and they came over to my house and yeah, my mom's cooking was awesome and it was different from theirs, but you know, and the friendships were based on a cultural exchange, but mm. it wasn't, well, and, and maybe that's just a fine way to start a friendship, but it, it, you know, became awkward for, for a moment in time where I, I felt like I just wanted to be a part of the, the, the group and just not necessarily have to be different or be seen as different. I just wanted to be like everybody else. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so when you went to, then you went to university in Iowa. Right. And um, then, so uh, did you feel like, uh, was that a big change in terms of uh, population or anything? Or were you still feeling like a little on the outside? The way that I started at the University of Iowa, I mean, I had big dreams to go somewhere else. And I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to get out of Iowa. I'm going to apply to NYU or Juilliard or somewhere else. And but in my last year of high school, I decided to take an acting class concurrently with my final semester. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I got into acting at the same time that I was a music major. Um and I think, you know, once actually once I started taking classes at the University of Iowa, it, the, the university was a bit more diverse. There were students, there's um, an international, uh, what is it, Department of Comparative Lit there. So there, oh. so there were international writing students from all over the world. Um, the theater department was pretty not diverse and the music Mm -hmm. department wasn't either but you know what it didn't matter because I was studying something that I I wanted to learn more about so I wasn't focused on feeling different anymore um Mm -hmm. yeah so when you took the acting class it you know it you were you taking it just to kind of tick off uh one of the um you've got to take another arts things or were you feeling drawn that kind of performance You know, I had always loved theater, um, and I think I said my my adopted Jewish aunt, it, who brought my mother 
her here. She was a, yeah. a children's writer. And she also wrote, published a book of children's plays. But the first play I ever saw was when I was seven years old in New York. Um, and it was a play that she had written. But that, you know, stuck in my brain as, oh, that was an experience. It was a multimedia event. Um, and it was the first experience that was like immersive. And I really loved that feeling. Um, so just, you know, out of curiosity, the classes that were offered during that semester that I could qualify for as, as a, a 16 year old, mm -hmm. um, was acting one. So I took, I took the acting one class and, you know, it's like, I felt like I was everybody's equal. It's, I'm trying to see it in my mind's eye. You know, it's like, there's this 15 and a half, 16 year old girl in the middle of this classroom full of adults. Um, because most of the people in the class were adults and some of it was uh, extended education or, you know. Um, so that was cool too. Just feeling like I was an equal with um, grownups. <laughs> um, I don't know where, why I got, but I think that's why going to university classes, you know, there was something else to focus on. It was like, okay, I'm here with the people that I, you know, because they were intelligent and smart and the conversations were intellectually stimulating and I felt challenged. But mm. uh, the acting class was, I got that same feeling, like we did some scene work and I had that feeling of being immersed in another world and mm. being able to, um, feel like I could understand what it would be like to be somebody else. Uh, you know, that was, you know, although I didn't recognize it at that moment, I think that's when I got hit by, mm -hmm. you know, like the, I've got to do fear um, bug. <laughs> and it grows on you like moss. Um, so, or something, huh? Uh, uh, so, so when you were in, in college, did you keep doing plays or were you really focused on the music? Um, so at first I really, I, I, I did my best to be a music student and focus on that as my priority. Um, so that was about two two straight years of being a music major and taking music theory and music history and staying in music practice room for like you know four five six hours a day um i actually got a scholarship to transfer to san francisco state university and mm -hmm. so i transferred there as a music major on a full scholarship and studied for two semesters with paul renzi and then I uh, honestly, the feeling of being trapped in a practice room and it's, it's like just looking at my life forward, you know, playing the tape forward and seeing that this was going to be a very, a lot of alone time. If I wanted to be a really mm -hmm. good musician before I would get to play music with, because I wanted to play in an orchestra, I wanted to play, be a classical flutist and play in an orchestra. And 
recognizing that if I want to do that, it's going to be a lot of time by myself to be a really great musician. And that I kept going back to that feeling of, of doing theater and being able to interact with other people and getting this other feeling of connection and real human connection. So I started taking theater classes again, you know, as a minor. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, so I dropped out of SF State U and uh, what, what happened? Oh, I, I'm trying to remember. Oh, I ended up back in Iowa. There's, there's a, another story in there, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, sometime around then I, uh, I made a big mistake. My, my first marriage happened, like while I was at San Francisco State University. I married a uh, French punk rock artist and uh, we moved to France and it was anyways, short story, bad choice, not a good thing, different, different time for that maybe. Um, and How I long went you back in to Iowa. Oh, about a year. Oh, okay. so it took me a while to finish my undergraduate degree, but I ended up back in Iowa um, and I was pretty depressed. And I went back to what had made me feel the best in my recent life. And that was like being able to um, be in somebody else's head. That's an mm -hmm. actor, you know, to create, to not have to be myself right now, but to actually have to em em embrace and embody somebody else's psyche. Um, so I went back to acting classes and this time, got really serious about that although still never majored in that you know and then mm. i i was planning on majoring in it and then yet again the oh see the the head of the theater department at that time i kept auditioning for things and not not getting cast in um, the roles that I would get called back for. And then there was a rumor, I, well, it wasn't a rumor, the stage manager shared with me that the director had said to him, well, do you think we could make her look white with makeup? As uh. a serious statement. And so when I heard that, it just made me feel like, you know, maybe there just isn't a future for me in in American theater right now. Um, and when I went to complain to the head of the department about it, he encouraged me to go into design. He said, you know, you're a really great designer. Maybe you should become a theater designer. And I was like, no, I want to be an actor. Mm. Well, the American theater main stage is not ready for that yet. We, you know, it's like maybe someday we'll be able to have families that have an Asian daughter and, uh, black father and a white son but not yet not now the audience will be too distracted and not be able to focus on the story um this was the 80s yeah, yeah but this is the 80s. this the 80s yeah, is like right that exactly. period where not traditional casting was the thing that was my argument to him i was like this is where i'm supposed to learn my trade um so anyways dropped out of the theater department and went into multimedia and textile design. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is where, you know, it's like 
my whole learning is a patchwork quilt, which I'm glad of now, but um, I don't know what would have been different if I had been able to, you know, keep focused on theater and, you know, stay, stay with that as my major, but um, be that as it may, that's the way it played out. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of the mime troupe was the first place that I came to that was casting multiculturally at the time, you know, and that it, I, I could play a white character and be Asian or, or yeah, playing white face. Um, <laughs> well, well, now before um, you, so you get, when you, when you graduated, um, what, what did, what was the job you went into or did you try to go, did you go straight out to audition or were you trying to get design gigs or what was going on? Um, okay. So this is where, so I'm at the University of Iowa and I'm actually still in the textile design department, but um, it was, I'm still taking acting classes and I actually, I guess, you know, as a minor, I'm taking directing classes, but I auditioned for a theater company called Geese Theater Company, mm. which uh, is a theater company that performs in prisons, minimum, medium, and maximum security prisons, and does workshops with inmates to um, create their own shows. But mm -hmm. we performed inside prisons. So I auditioned for that. And this was the first time I ever did an audition that used masks. So um, the director of that company, John Bergman, you know, like opened up this suitcase and it was like this vaudeville act. It was like full of costume pieces and these great paper mache masks. And um, so it was like physical theater. Um, and he made us do all these crazy like Bauhaus exercises and uh, just weird um, I don't know it, it, it's similar to stuff that later on I've done with the mime troupe but maybe even more extreme very very first extremely physical audition you know it's like be a monster it's like okay great um, create your own grotesque uh, and of course, then that became what I wanted to do. I was like, oh yeah, I want more of that. You know, it's like, I, I want to do physical theater, not just theater, but I want to do physical acting. And so I got the part, I joined the company and we toured, I toured that summer. Um, I think I was 19 and I toured with Geese Theater Company in a school bus. Um, mm -hmm. We tricked out an old school bus and put bunks in it and cupboards. And I can't remember how many members there were, but there were probably like 12 of us living on a school bus and camping in tents. Um, wow. Yeah, no, I'm, and that was, that was a huge experience. Um, stop prison riots <laughs> from, from inside the prison. Um, got got into a lockdown, you know, we'd be doing a show and then we'd have to just stay there on stage. <laughs> oh. um, but, you know, met some amazing people mm -hmm. that 
I mean, I, just to meet anybody who I have a stereotype of, like a prison inmate, you know, somebody who's in there for life, I have a certain picture in my mind of what that looks like. And then when I was sitting face to face with a woman who had, I don't know, a 300 year sentence for having killed her husband after he was unfaithful to her, it was my, like, a real awakening to just people with really different problems from from my own. I mean, I grew up going to Vietnam War protests and, you know, like rights for women. And it's like conceptually, I understood activism, but mm -hmm. the importance of what I was doing on stage in the prisons didn't really come home until I was sitting talking face to face with these people and um, recognizing that there but for a few different things happening in my life could be me, you know, mm -hmm. um, that we really are all the same species. But, you know, just by something happening differently in my situation, could I be a battered wife who then feels compelled to, you know, change my situation in a violent way? Sure. Sure, I could. Anyway, so mm -hmm. it just felt like um, I, I, it changed the way I view theater in terms of a communication medium. Like we can communicate really important, necessary ideas to other real people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? um, so how long were you with Geese Theater? Um, Geese Theater Company was... That tour lasted, that was the summer, but we continued rehearsing another production through the next school year, so probably like a year total. And mm -hmm. then um, in the winter of the next year, I took a phone call from uh, a theater company in Canada called Caravan Stage Company. Mm -hmm. um, another theater company I had never heard of. And they were, oh, yeah, I got married again in that time between the, <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Anyways, um, so they were calling for my, my husband at the time, mm -hmm. um, who was a clown and uh, kind of a, he was an actor and performer. And they were calling for him to, to offer him a job with the caravan stage company he had gone to del arte and was they were looking for a juggler and somebody who could use mask and um a good physical comic so mm -hmm. i started talking to them and it's snowing it's a blizzard outside i'm snowbound and i'm going wow you do what you you tour with clydesdale driven wagons that's crazy and so this guy's telling me all about it and i said oh yeah well um um, Bill isn't home right now, so I'll take a message. And then he asked me, so who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm his wife. And he said, oh, well, we don't like to split up couples. Um, so I was like, oh, no, 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 but I'm sure he'd really love to do this show. He says, well, so what do you do? And I, my response, of course, was, well, even though I was still a, a textile design major, I said, oh, I, I'm an actor. <laughs> so, oh, well, could you send us your resume? So I, you know, I slammed a resume together and 
So again, you know, my, my inner self is saying, no, you really want to be an actor. So I put a resume together and sent it to them and they offered me a job too. So that's oh, cool. actually how I ended up in California because <laughs> that, that job took me to, um, where did we start off? Oh, we started out up north in gold country, uh, Red Bluff. So somewhere up there, Reading, mm -hmm. um, on a ranch up there. It was my, I was, woke up after a long, long drive across country. Like, oh, this is California. And then looked out the window and there was a bunch of Clydesdales in a field. Um, so wow. that's how I spent the next couple of years of my life before the Mime Troop. <laughs> So where did you guys uh, tour around and what were those shows like and about? Um, they were, uh, what were they about? Again, they did mostly environmental issues at the time, but political theater, um, mm -hmm. physical theater, mostly mask, mask and circus. It was performed in a giant tent called the Cosmodrome that we would put, or put up that could house 500 people. You know, wow. I think about that as a possibility. You know, it's like, maybe we should have a big audience tent with the sun getting yeah, so hot. Yeah, the way things Anyways. are going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to protect the audience, maybe we need to put up a big solar tent. So we traveled with a portable circus tent um, open, yeah, anyways, that housed 500 people. And we would go from town to town using Clydesdale drawn, horse drawn wagons. Um, a live band and a very similar physical style of theater to what the Mime Troupe uses. It was theater in the round because it's a round circus. Right, the tent, um, and it was really my first first performance where I played I primarily no no it was, it was like my first big mask role I got to play mm -hmm. a, a coyote or a young girl who trans falls in love with a coyote and then transforms into a coyote at the end mm -hmm. um mostly a silent role just like the character Love was it. mostly you know physical gesticulation and that is the show that the members of the mime troupe at the time came to see. We did the performance on Martin Luther King in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And we, we had set up the tent there and did the show there. And that's where they came to see it. And I guess that's where they saw me and asked me to audition for Dragon Lady's Revenge. But um, anyways, yeah, we toured. It, it, it was like eight miles a day on those wagons <laughs> Jeez. pissing off a lot of people in cars you know were you on the highway or on side roads or what we avoided the highway as much as we could um wow. we had outriders to stop and slow traffic we would use the frontage roads as much as possible um but when it wasn't avoidable, we'd be on the freeway or the highway really slow with cars honking. Horses don't like cars honking. So that was pretty stupid. 
Or, mm -hmm. you know, people would be really, you know, the people who were charmed were charmed and they'd be like happy. Like, how often do you get to see five horse drawn yeah. wagons on the street and there's circus wagons? They're, they were beautiful painted um, gypsy wagons. Um, and actually, our publicist was Trip Mickage, who was also oh. a publicist for the Mime Troupe. So that's another connection. Um, but all of the shows they've done have been based on political issues. The two shows that I did with them were environmental issues. Um, mm -hmm. Coyotes was, uh, what it was, you know, there were a lot of wildlife was being shot and eradicated as, as people were pushing pushing back in Northern California and it was against logging and environmental protection laws. Mm. But, uh, and then I did another one in Toronto, which was about uh, toxic waste being dumped in the big lakes. Mm. Um, so again, it was really great to, to be a part of, of a theater company that, was spreading a message and it, it felt like it was working. You know, we would have dialogues with the audience afterwards. And sometimes we'd have farmers who were really pissed off, like arguing with us about why they had to shoot coyotes and wolves and, you know, that we couldn't coexist and they had to burn. And, you know, um, yeah, there were also loggers who talked about, you know, how we needed to, cut trees and that they were they were doing good by the environment by replanting and you know we couldn't argue that old growth was different than new growth with them but it was great that they actually came to see the show yeah really that's what i was thinking it's like yeah. it's like when we did the tour of eating it and there are all of the farmers and environmentalists and people who came to see the show when we were in uh, minneapolis mm -hmm. and there's a post-show discussion and it was like they were seeing what they had in common and that that ultimately their goals weren't necessarily that different. Everybody wants to think they're doing good. Right. You know, they don't yeah. want to think that they're messing with things. They're all like, well, what we're doing or we either have to do it and we would prefer that we didn't have to do it or what we're doing is actually going to be helpful and they just might be wrong. Right. But at least, but that's their motivation. It's not just right. like, I want some of that sweet, sweet cutting down the forest money, you know? Uh, so... So anyway, so you're back in the Bay Area after having been here with San Francisco State, and the Mind Troop asked you to come in and audition for them. And yeah. you're still married at this point? Uh, no. Oh, okay. No, I, I, I was, was not. Okay. I believe. So, I, I, so, you, so now you're a free agent, and you, uh, <laughs> and you, uh, you come in and audition for uh, the remount of Dragon Lady's Revenge. Right. And what was that like? Completely different part of the country and a group of strange people. Um, you know, that was really, it was a fun audition. Again, you know, it's like I had an audition for a lot of professional companies. So Arthur Holden was the director for the remount of that. Um, and... It was fun, you know. It's like we did a lot of a lot of theater games, and again, they were asking for for large physical, uh, you know, physical acting. Mm 
and um, kind of went against all of the acting training I had had at the University of Iowa in many ways. But it was the fun stuff, you know, it's like create, uh, you know, uh, larger than life characters. So that was fun. I don't know if I expected to get the part. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the exercises that I was asked to do, I was like, well, this wouldn't be fun to do. I think I would like to work with this company. Hmm. Um, so I, were you thinking about like, by this point, you'd been away from Iowa for a year? Mm, yeah, I think this was like my second year away so were you thinking of like i'm done with Iowa? were you still uh, expecting that you would move back there or were you like because you lived in france for a while so were you kind of like i don't know where i'm gonna end up um yeah i decided to try san francisco for a while Mm-hmm. um yeah, I didn't want to go back to Iowa, even though I, you know, it's like I ought to have gone back there to finish my MFA in textile design. But at this point, I'd been <laughs> out touring with, you know, two different companies doing political theater, and that felt more like a calling. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, getting getting the role with the mime troupe for the dragon lady's revenge kind of sealed the deal i feel like and i still i wasn't a collective member at that time it was still just a job that i was going to do and i would try it um and in fact after the tour i was asked if i would be interested in becoming a collective member and at that time i was like mm, i don't know i don't know exactly where i'm gonna end up yet and i still had thoughts of moving to new york or Los Angeles, you know, it's like one of the two places. It's like yeah. if I'm going to be a professional actor, I probably still need to do that somewhere in my in my mind. I thought, um, but in fact, I ended up staying in the Bay Area and working with a um, a couple other companies in between. I think I did with work with Life on the Water. Did a couple shows with Bill Talon. It's like, that feels like such a long time ago at this point. <laughs> it was a long time ago. That's ah, just, just yesterday. It was just yesterday. Yeah. It feels like it sometimes, but then when I try to put, you know, sew together all the little details, I'm like, oh my God, I jumped around so much, you know? Yeah. There's that point, you know, where you kind of go, that was... And then you start counting back decades and you go, oh, that was 30 years ago. It doesn't feel like that. I but mean, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say there was so much happening in the theater community in San Francisco at that time. Like the late 80s just felt like, you know, there was the new vaudeville resurgence. Yeah. There was a lot of circus stuff happening. So I did a short stint traveling with the pickle family circus mm -hmm. um but there was you know the old eureka i, I mean yeah i mean you remember there were like small theaters there was so much stuff 
There was so much. Yeah, stuff there were happening. theater companies all over the hate, you know, Bear Flag Theater, Gumption Theater, Lilith. Yeah. You know, there were so many small uh, SF. Now there's SF Playhouse, but there used to be at San Francisco Repertory Theater over in Noe Valley. There were theaters in every neighborhood and theater companies all over the place. And like you said, in addition to Make a Circus and Pickle Family Circus yeah. and all of these smaller companies that it seemed like um, the Mime Troupe inspired a lot of these companies. A lot of people that had studied with the Mime Troupe and went off and did, especially circus. Like, you know, was it Big Apple Circus in New York was an ex-Mime Trooper and all of these different people that uh, um, that were kind of like this swirl of theater, of acting and circus work around the troupe mm-hmm. uh, at that time. And I think, and so, yeah, I saw you uh, in the backyard preview before a tour of Dragon Ladies. I came to the backyard preview because, uh, uh, what's his name, Jesse, uh, Jesse Moore. Jesse Moore. He knew that I would. I had done a show with him at Lorraine Hansberry Theater, and he knew I was really interested in the Mime Troupe, and I'd seen the company since I was a teenager, and so he knew. And so he's like, "Well, you should come to the backyard preview and get it kind of, kind of meet some people and get some behind the scenes, you know, uh, just to see see people as humans and hang out." Which I didn't do. I just went saw the show in the backyard and left because I didn't even know hanging out was an option. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I saw you, and I hadn't seen you in other shows. And I was like, "Ooh, there's a new person." Right. So, so after you finished um, that, what was the show right after that? Was it uh, Ripped? Was that the next show? No, I think we did Mozambola Caper. Oh, that's I, right. Yeah. I was not in that, but um, yeah, uh, Stacy asked me if I would like to build the crocodile puppet for that so oh, really? um yeah so i got kind of like pulled lured back in it's like well you want to build a puppet so i built a crocodile puppet which is still in the studio but uh so they tried to keep me hanging around and i liked i liked being an observer of the troop for that for that while and you know it's like i was learning more about it I would walk by the kitchen door and hear the collective meetings and be like, oh, no, no, no. I don't think I want to join this. Um, uh, but it was it was good to know that one could be an actor and also a builder and, you know, that there were other you could be a multi faceted performer artist there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started considering yeah. collective membership. But, uh, that yeah, Mozambola caper. I was not in. I just made a puppet for them, and then it was. What was next? Maybe it was ripped next. I yeah, think I think yeah, so. Ripped was next. I think you guys did. There was that weird. Well, when was that weird tour of uh, not weird tour, but the tour of Secrets in the Sands? I think Secret in the Sand because that's when my knee. I, I had a knee injury that mm. I had to not, not go on tour with that. Um, so I think that was maybe just before. That was after. After, after ripped. ripped. Yeah, right. Because I did the tour in the fall of Ripped. I came in as a replacement actor. And mm-hmm. then I couldn't do 
secrets in the sands. And I was like, oh, that's it. I guess I'm never working for this company again. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that didn't happen. Um, so, so that's everything, almost everything, getting up to you being with the troop. And then I'm realizing, like, in doing this interview, I was like, oh, and then there's all of the troop stuff. We might have to do that in another interview because we're already coming up on, like, an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so meanwhile, I guess what we'll do is we could stop now. This is your at the troop, and then later on we can do another one that's about your your years with the troop and working with uh you know all the other theater companies you've worked with and touring around and doing and your design work, which we've just started to kind of touch on again. Oh, um, it's a lot. But well, when you enough. stop and talk about somebody's life starting from where they're born, yes, Michael, that's... that's. This has been the Mimecast, and I've been Michael Gene Sullivan. Music for the Mimecast is by Dred Scott. Now, if you're interested in seeing video versions of any of these interviews, please check out the San Francisco Mime Troop YouTube channel. Thanks a lot. See you next time. Power to the people.